My name's Matt, for those who haven't met me. Uh, I'm a student minister here uh, with my wife, Winona. Uh, we've just started up the start of this year. I want to say a massive thanks for the very warm welcome we've had so far. Uh, look forward to getting to know more of you afterwards uh, out at supper. Before we start, uh, in Daniel chapter 6 today, it'd be great if to open your Bibles back up to that passage, uh, page 1386 uh, in the church Bibles. Great to have that open in front of you so we can check if what I'm saying actually matches up with the Word of God. Please do that. Let's also ask God to help us. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gift of your word to us in the Bible. I ask that your spirit be at work in each of us today as we look in this passage in Daniel. Please soften our hearts to hear your truth and change our lives as we seek to love and serve you. We praise these thing, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, back in 2019, the car company Volvo ran an ad for Earth Hour. That one hour of the whole year where everyone switches their lights off to save some electricity, help out the planet. So Volvo ran an ad, and this was their tagline. You've got the whole world in your hands. You've got the whole world in your hands. It's a pretty clear message. Our earth is precious, and it's up to us to save it. And so you can do your bit by buying one of Volvo's schmick new electric cars. How convenient. Well, almost 30 years earlier, MasterCard ran an ad with the same words, but maybe less of a noble message. With your MasterCard in your hands, you can do anything. Because money takes you places. Money fulfills your wildest dreams. And it gives you power to make real change. With a MasterCard, the whole world is in your hands. But you're hearing me say this, and you know as Christians, this is a lie. We know that things aren't in our hands. They're actually outside of our control. We know that they're in God's hands and that he's the one in control. And that's what we've seen over and over and over again in the book of Daniel. We know this. We say this. We even sing about it. But I wonder, do our prayers reveal a different story? In our prayers, or maybe even in our lack of prayers, do they reveal something deep down that maybe we actually do think we're in control. Well, in Daniel chapter 6 today, we start off our passage by meeting a man who is at the very top of the world. He's as close to the top as you can get. His name is King Darius. Over the last few chapters in Daniel, we've been following the reign of some Babylonian kings. And so far, we've covered the reigns of Nebuchadnezzar and his grandson, Belshazzar. Now, both of these guys were mighty and both of these guys were powerful. And yet both of these guys have been humbled before God in different ways. But now their time is over. A new dynasty has started. Move over Babylon, hallow Persia. It's time for the Persian Empire to take its seat at the top of the world. Darius the Mede has overthrown the Babylonian Empire. And he's established Persia as the new world superpower. He's a man who is unrivaled in power, sitting at the very top of the world. Everything has changed. There's a new world order in place. But interestingly, one thing actually remains the same. Daniel is still here. He's still alive. By this stage, Daniel's probably around 80 years old, but he's still kicking. Just like before, Daniel has a position of great authority in this kingdom, to the point where King Darius actually plans to have Daniel pretty much take care of the whole kingdom for him. 
So take a look with me in your Bibles, Daniel chapter 6, starting from verse 1. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Well, the other guys in charge, they don't take too kindly to Darius's idea. They don't like the idea of Daniel being set above them. They'd much rather if they were the king's favorites. And so they come up with a scheme. They hatch a plan. They plan to find some dirt on the king's favorite man. Once Darius sees that Daniel isn't quite as great as he seems, they say to themselves, he'll be out of the job. We can get a promotion and move up the ladder. It's a pretty decent plan. But there's just one slight problem. You might have already seen it. Daniel is as perfect as he seems. No matter how hard these guys look, they can't find a single fault in Daniel's conduct. He's employee of the month, every single month, and for very good reason. But now these officials, they stick to their guns and they aren't put off so easily. They can't fault Daniel in his work life, so they target his private life instead. And specifically, they zero in and target Daniel's prayer life. And so it's with smooth words of flattery that these, these men convince the king, King Darius, that because he is so powerful, everyone in his kingdom should pray to him. King Darius is in control. King Darius is the one who can save. King Darius is the one who can help you. So everyone, everywhere, pray to King Darius. And if anyone does get any funny ideas of not praying to the king and praying to their god instead, well, they can be tossed into the den of lions. Darius likes this idea. What an excellent way to show the whole world that they are in his hands. And so he signs off on the law, a law of the Medes and the Persians. It's a law set in stone which cannot be changed, not by anyone. So take a look with me from verse 4. At this, the administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, making Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so it cannot be changed in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing." What's Daniel supposed to do? He's trapped. They've got him. It's either pray to Darius or be lion food. And yet, in spite of this threat, Daniel boldly rejects the king's new law. And he does what he's always done. He goes home, he goes upstairs, and boldly and openly prays to God. Daniel could have at least shut the windows or gone somewhere where he wouldn't have been seen and overheard. 
It kept his faith under wraps just for a little bit, at least until this whole situation blows over. But he doesn't do that. Why? It's because Daniel actually knows who's really in control. It's a hint, it's not King Darius. Daniel knows that God is the one who can truly save and he can truly help. It doesn't take long before the administrators discover that Daniel has done exactly what they were hoping he would do. And so they come before the king and they hurl Daniel under the bus. Well, Daniel doesn't pray to you, O king. He only prays to his God. He doesn't care about your law. And so the verdict is in and Daniel stands guilty. But what you might find surprising here is King Darius's reaction. Over the last few chapters, we've been seeing time and time again, when these foreign kings have disobedient Jewish men under their disposal, they get furious when they break their laws. And yet here, King Darius, he has the complete opposite reaction. Darius loves Daniel. He realizes he's been tricked, and so he actually does his very best to try to rescue Daniel. He's trying to rescue him from the very law that he put in place and signed off on. Now remember, the whole point of this law is that everyone prays to Darius because he's supposed to be in control. He's the one who's supposed to be able to save. But in this case, Darius falls short. He can't do it. The administrators, they come in and they shatter Darius's perception of control. Remember, they say, the law that you signed off on is in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians. No one can change it. Not even you, O king. And so Darius is powerless. Take a look from verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. And so they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of, one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. Darius is forced to toss his most trusted and hardworking man into the den of lions. He's powerless the world slipping through his fingers. And as the heavy stone is moved into place to cover the entrance, Darius is forced to finally admit the truth. He can't save Daniel. And so Darius himself actually prays that God, the true God who Daniel worships, perhaps he can rescue Daniel where Darius couldn't. You almost feel sorry for King Darius here. He goes to bed defeated, he doesn't sleep a wink all night long, and he's tossing and he's turning, he's agonizing over his inability to act and help his friend. Eventually the sun rises and Darius throws aside his regal dignity 
and he runs full pelt to the lion's den. Could Daniel possibly, by any chance, still be alive? Well, Daniel certainly is alive, and God has done far more than Darius could ever dream of. God has rescued Daniel. And so it's with shouts of joy that Darius orders that Daniel be taken up out from the lion's den. Take a look from verse 16. And so the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Darius has some business to take care of now. And so first he has to deal with the traitorous administrators. In accordance with Persian justice systems, they and their families get the punishment that they wrongly wanted to inflict on innocent Daniel. And as if to prove just how serious the danger was that Daniel was in, that God has just saved him from, it only takes a matter of seconds for them to fall to the lion's power. And then our chapter finishes with Darius finally admitting the truth. It's the same truth that both Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar had to learn. God is the true God. Darius is not. God is stronger than Babylon, and God is also stronger than Persia. God is supreme, and God is above all others. And importantly, Darius has learned that while he was powerless to act and powerless to save, God isn't powerless. God can save. He has the power that Darius does not. And so Darius writes to all of his kingdom, every corner of the known world, and he calls on everyone to humble themselves and to acknowledge the truth that he has learnt. God is the one who can save. Take a look at the last few verses from our passage today from verse 24. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language of all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His domain will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And that's Daniel chapter 6. 
what have we seen from our passage today? King Darius, he thought that he was king of the world. He thought that his power was supreme. And he thought that he was in total control, that the whole world was in his hands, to the point where he wrote a law that demanded everyone in the world pray only to him. But it doesn't take long for Darius to realise that he's completely mistaken in his thoughts. He's tricked by his own people. He's powerless to save his right-hand man, Daniel. But God shows that he has power to do what Darius could not. God could save Daniel from the very jaws of death. And so Darius learns that he is powerless while God is supreme. And so everyone should revere God. Everyone should pray to God. They shouldn't pray to Darius because God is the one who can save. Before we think about how this passage applies to us today, it's right that we think about the original readers. While they may have returned from the exile, the Jewish people were still under enemy oppression. And so that while they're looking around for someone to help in their, their situation, Daniel chapter 6 tells them to only hope for God in their rescue. Like Daniel, they need to not pray to anyone else, any other God, any other man, only to the one true God, to keep trusting in the Lord who saves. These returned exiles might be tempted to put their hope in some other nation, some other enemy nation to come along, wipe out their conquerors and set them free. This passage says that's a false hope. They don't have power to save. God does. They might be tempted to rely on human leaders to bring relief. But this story here shows that not even King Darius, with all of his power, was the one to hope in. No, only God can save. He's the one to hope in. He's the one they should turn to for help. And so, friends, as Christians today, we have to think the same way. And we actually know even more clearly than Daniel himself did that God is the one who saves God showed his power to save both when he rescued Daniel from the lions, but even more greatly when he raised up our Lord Jesus from the dead. Just like in our passage today, Jesus was an innocent man who was sent to face death. And he faced that death in our place. He was buried in a tomb which was sealed by a heavy stone. And once you're dead, that's it. People don't come back. It's a law of nature. It might as well be part of the law of the Medes and the Persians. No one can change it. Once you're dead, that's over. Unless you're God, because God, by his great power, shows how he can raise Jesus from death, up from the pit. Friends, we don't have power to save ourselves, but our great God does. And he can save us from death eternally. And so, what's the appropriate way to respond? In the book of 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul reminds his readers that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, just like us. And that's the good news that we as Christians put our hope and trust in. God saves sinners. And so, Paul tells us how to respond to this great news that we put our trust in. In chapter 2, verse 1 of, uh, of 1 Timothy, Paul says these words. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all of those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. 
This makes sense, doesn't it? If God really is the one who saves, then we as Christians who trust in him should pray to him. If God really is the one who can help, then we should be people who pray. The fact is that we will pray to the one who we think can help us. And so if I can push a little, what does your current prayer life reveal about you? How often do you pray? And when you pray, how much time do you spend in prayer? What kind of things do you pray about? And what's your instinct for when you're facing hard times? Who do you turn to for help? Do you turn to God? What does your prayer life say about where you put your hope? Now, I know life's busy. We all have busy lives. Regardless of the stage of life, whether we're workers, full-time students, whatever, we have busy lives. Uh, Recently, I've changed churches. This is a wonderful church, but it's different. Takes a bit of getting used to. Thanks for the welcome, by the way. It's it's very helpful. Um, uh, I've recently started up at full-time Bible college. Subjects to learn new languages, languages that aren't even spoken anymore. It's all over the place. There's lots of things to do. Things are busy. Bouncing friendships from old and new circles. We have busy lives, and I'm sure it's the same for everyone here. It's easy for prayer to get squeezed out at the end of the day or for it to become one of those many chores we just tick off the list, get it out of the way, get it done. But friends, if we're honest with ourselves, we know it's not just busyness that stops us from praying. Our failure to pray actually reveals a deeper truth on the inside. It actually reveals who we think is really in control. It reveals who we think can help and save. And sad to say, sometimes that's not God. There's a very real danger for us to rely on our own abilities, our own influence, our own status, or our own money as the solution that we need to kind of get through life. We run, run the risk of feeling like God is kind of obsolete. We believe he's there, somewhere distant out there as a safety net, just in case things get bad enough that I can pull the cord and God will be there to help me. But for the most part, I can get by by myself. And it's reflected in our prayers. It's reflected in the small things. We don't ask God for our daily bread. We assume it'll come to us regardless, that we can earn it ourselves. But it also extends to the bigger things too. When we see injustice or hear about natural disasters, we set our hope in government programs to set things right. Now, there's nothing wrong with these government programs or with the work that we do to earn our daily bread, but we fall for the trap and forget that every human gift is from every sorry every good gift is from God, and start to feel as though we humans are the ones in control. Like in the Volvo ad, we fall for the lie and start to believe that maybe the world really is in our hands. Maybe we really do have the power to change things. And so, friends, like uh, like Darius. We need to be rebuked by this passage today. God is the one who saves and not us. God is the one who provides and not us. God is the one who can help, not us. Because God is God. We're not. And so, friends, let's start by praying to God. Praying for the seemingly small things in our lives. Ask God for your daily bread And then when he gives it to you, give thanks wholeheartedly for the generous gift. 
but pray for the big things too. As we pray, we're actually expressing our reliance on God for everything. We're expressing that trust that we say that we have. And when we don't pray, we're expressing that really on the inside we're relying on ourselves. We pray to who we think can help us. So let's pray to God. Now, friends, the point of all of this is not to make us feel guilty because this is actually great comforting news. God is in control. God can genuinely help. When we stop trusting in ourselves and start trusting in God, praying to him, it actually brings us comfort. Unlike Darius, we can sleep easily at night, resting in the great knowledge that God has complete power He has complete control and authority, and he uses that power to save. God has the whole world in his hands, so let's confidently and thankfully pray to him. So let's do that now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good and that you are the one who saves. Please help us to know and recognize that you are God and we are not. We're sorry for the times we rely on what you've given us our abilities, our status, instead of relying on you. Grow us to trust in you and your strength, the strength that raised Jesus from the dead. Please grow us to express our trust in you through our prayers. Help us to turn to you in everything for our hope and comfort. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.